Welcome to CV Now, your podcast from Houston Methodist Debakey CV Education. I'm your host, George Tripsis. Surgeons put their head together and said, how can we minimize the insult of either the larger incision or the heart lung machine? How we can avoid these things which will help reduce the trauma to the body? In recent years, Minimally Invasive Cardiac Surgery, or MIX, has revolutionized the cardiac surgery field, offering opportunities to minimize patient trauma and speed up recovery times for variety cardiac interventions. We gathered a group of MIX experts to give us a primer on the MIX for cardiovascular healthcare professionals. They'll go into what qualifies as minimally invasive cardiac surgery or how MIX has evolved over time difference from traditional cardiac surgery, training considerations, the role of professional societies, and much more. Dr. Mahesh Ramshadani, Chief Cardiac Surgeon at Houston Methodist, moderates a panel with Dr. Nirav Patel, Director of Robotic Cardiac Surgery at Northwell Health, Dr. Stephen Hoff, Cardiac Surgeon from Orlando Health Heart Institute, Dr. Moritz Weiler von Balamus, Cardiothoracic Surgeon from Houston Methodist, and Dr. Aaron Spooner, Thoracic Surgeon from Houston Methodist. Now let's get into it. Hello everybody, my name is Mahesh Ramchandani and we're going to talk to you today. It's going to be a panel discussion revolving around minimally invasive cardiac surgery. And I have with me a very distinguished panel. We have Steve Hoff, uh, who is the Vice Chairman at Orlando Regional Medical Center, Vice Chairman of Cardiac Surgery. And we have Nirav Patel, who is the uh, Vice Chairman of Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery at Lenox Hill Hospital in the Northwell System in New York one of the largest in the country. Um, on my left is uh, Moritz Weiler von Balmus, who is one of our, my associates and um, uh, has been with us uh, for some time, trained here and is now on faculty over here. And on my right is Aaron Spooner, uh, who is uh, a super fellow. He's, he's from Canada and we don't hold that against him, uh, but he came down over here uh, because he thought he might be able to learn some things in minimally invasive and transcatheter techniques, and we hope that it's been a useful year for him. It's coming to an end, and uh, as is always the case, I learn more from the people that train here uh, uh, than from my other colleagues. Um, so welcome to all of you. Just as a reminder, this, this uh, webinar will be recorded and stored on the YouTube channel. In addition, all of the talks from the Revolution meeting, which is a meeting that we have held every year for 10 years now, that focuses on minimally invasive cardiac surgery. Uh, all of the talks, and many have been given by Nirav Patel and Steve Hoff, uh, are available uh, on the DeBakey Education channel on YouTube for you to look at, and, and it'll flesh out some of the ideas that we're talking, uh, uh, that we will be talking about today. So let me start uh, with you, Steve. Uh, thank you, first of all, for being uh, on here with us. We really appreciate it. These are strange times, and it feels as if uh, uh, I, I had someone say to me the other day uh, the most apt uh, way of describing it, and, and he said, it feels like we're in a movie. You know, it, it, it's really kind of an odd uh, sort of way to be living, but uh, 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 we're getting used to it, and I, I, I have no doubt that um, that, uh, that we, we will live in a changed world. So let me start by asking you, Steve, what, what is minimally invasive cardiac surgery? So to start, I think we ought to start with where cardiac surgery started. And, you know, over the 
60 or 70 years that cardiac surgery has evolved, um, generally we're talking about a group of procedures that were uh, uh, required a breastbone incision, a sternotomy to access the heart and required the heart to be stopped. And uh, that then required the patient to be on the heart-lung machine. Um, and we got extremely good, are extremely good at doing operations like that, but that is probably considered maximally invasive. So as technology has allowed and has talents have allowed over the last 20 years, probably, uh, techniques have evolved to allow surgeons to perform many of these operations uh, less invasively. I would suggest that's in two different ways. The first is avoiding a sternotomy incision, whether that means um, a, uh, an incision between the ribs, whether it means using scopes, whether it means catheters, um, techniques that would allow us to do these procedures without a breastbone incision, and techniques that uh, often allow us to do these procedures without the need for stopping the heart and putting the patient on the heart-lung machine. So that includes a broad definition, which we'll talk about as the hour goes on. That includes treatments for coronary artery disease, aortic valve disease, mitral valve disease, and arrhythmias. Yeah. I'd like to pick up on something that you said about the heart-lung machine, and it's important, I think, to, um, uh, to I think to point out that using the heart-lung machine um, is obviously essential in some types of minimally invasive cardiac surgery and is optional in others. Uh, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But yeah, I think the, as we get to talk a little bit more about disease-specific uh, uh, treatments, we'll see that um, in order to do valve surgery in general, um, uh, those are structures within the heart and require the heart to be stopped. Now, we'll talk about catheter-based procedures that don't, um, but uh, for treatments that can be done on the surface of the heart, uh, including coronary artery revascularization, um, you know, there, we'll talk about techniques that have allowed us to do that without the need for the heart-lung machine. Yeah. Nirov, can you tell us a little bit about how this all started? I mean, why did cardiac surgeons become interested in it? And who were the cardiac surgeons that really provided that push that got this thing going? So I think it basically started because as through the mid-90s to start of the century, the patients which were referred for heart surgery were getting more and more sicker. They had multiple comorbid factors. There were more elderly patients undergoing heart surgery. So surgeons, um, some of the pioneers put their head together and said, how can we minimize the insult of either the larger incision or the heart-lung machine as was mentioned before, how we can avoid these things which will help reduce the trauma to the body so that it will speed up the recovery and uh, also cause less complications. So surgeons in Europe, surgeons in the United States, and surgeons in Brazil, just to name the few, one of my mentors, Manny Subramanian, pioneered minimally invasive bypass surgery. Um, Dr. Carpentier, Dr. Fred Moore, Dr. Chitwood in the United States started doing the robotic heart surgery. 
And then in the uh, end of 1990s uh, came a company which was named at that time Hotport, which came up with certain instrumentation, which were long shafted instruments, enabling surgeons to reach inside the cavity, thoracic cavity, um, and perform operations with instruments. Also, they came up with catheters, which would help us gain access to the blood vessels um, to establish heart-lung mm -hmm. machine and stop the heart. Um, and that's how it all started. And then the technology improved over the years, techniques improved, and the learning process improved, which has made uh, minimally invasive cardiac surgery much more available and performed much more uh, broadly across the wider spectrum. Thank you, Nero. I'm going to let Aaron pick up on that. So I think that's an excellent segue into kind of the goal of minimally invasive cardiac surgery, not with any one particular procedure, but just in general, how it differs from the standard full sternotomy, full cut down the middle of the chest. Um, so first off, one of the benefits is a potentially smaller scar, an improved appearance, maybe a little bit quicker back to normal life, normal mo mobility. One of the problems with going through the breastbone is we treat it like a broken bone afterwards. It takes time to heal. Whereas the smaller incision through the ribs, the patients don't have those limitations after their operation. So they're able to move around, use their arms for mobilization and get back to life a little bit normal, uh, quicker. Um, often they have faster recovery, shorter hospital stays. Um, and one of the another findings is often there's less blood loss when doing a procedure through a minimally invasive uh, incision in the chest, so a thoracotomy as opposed to the standard sternotomy. Ritz? Yeah, I, th I think as we talk about minimally invasive cardiac surgery, it's really important to to define what what is minimally invasive cardiac surgery. What what does minimal invasive mean? And I would maybe ask everybody here to quickly give their definition of minimal invasive cardiac surgery, what defines minimal invasive cardiac surgery procedures. And maybe I'll ask Steve Hoff to go first and just give me your, your um, you know, what, what qualifies as a minimally invasive cardiac surgery procedure in your opinion? Yeah, I would suggest that it's, uh, if we're talking about minimizing impacts, as Nerev said, the impacts that we started with were the sternotomy incision, the breastbone incision, and the heart-lung machine. And so uh, a minimally invasive procedure then um, ought to be able to um, avoid one or both of those um, physiologic insults, either avoid a sternotomy, avoid the heart-lung machine, or both. Let me just follow up on this before we go to Nirov. But you say avoid a sternotomy. Is, it, is there an importance in making a difference between minimally invasive and sternal sparing procedures? Do you think that is um, an important dis distinction? Mm, I don't know. I think that it, it depends on the operation. Uh, you know, I think you could make an argument that um, a bypass operation done without the heart-lung machine, but through a sternotomy is significantly less impactful to the patient. Um, I think you could make an argument that a mitral valve operation done through a, a chest wall incision um, 
but with the heart-lung machine, in many ways provides superior visualization of the valve itself um, uh, or done through scopes with a robot. So um, again, whether you're talking about sparing the breastbone incision or the heart-lung machine or both, it depends on the nature of the procedure. Yeah, and I, I certainly would very much agree with that. You know, from, from my perspective, I think, although it may be semantics to some, I think it's important to distinguish between minimal invasive, minimal access, sternal sparing. Um, Niraf, in, in, in your words, what, what qualifies for a minimal invasive cardiac surgical procedure? So there can be two things. One is a much broader definition, which you avoid a full stenotomy. So that's access-wise. So that's minimally access. Uh, so you could do either a smaller stenotomy that is less uh, invasive than a full stenotomy. In a way, it works is that you are still preserving a part of the breastbone, less mobility. It does lend to less pain. So even though it is not entirely sternal sparing, it can qualify as minimal access. But then when we talk about invasiveness, so invasiveness has two components, as Steve mentioned. One is the heart-lung machine, and one is the incision or the access to it. Um, so if you can avoid a heart-lung machine and the only real coronary, uh, only open heart procedure traditionally done, um, which can avoid heart-lung machine, coronary bypass surgery, Everything else, we need to use uh, the heart-lung machine for the valve replacement and repair as we do surgically. Obviously, transcatheter, as we will go into it a little bit more deep dive into it later on, does need heart-lung machine, whether you do it small incision or not. Very nicely put, Nirav. If you could, you know, for the people out there that listen in on this and may not be as familiar with um, heart surgery, if you, if you could just outline what the benefits are uh, between a sternotomy and not needing a sternotomy. We're, we're talking now a lot about using a sternotomy versus other ways to access the heart. What, what are the benefits of avoiding a sternotomy in your opinion? So there are, uh, so one, the biggest thing is less discomfort to the patient. Second thing is Typically, the sternum has the least amount of blood supply, especially when we harvest the arteries, like internal mammary artery, um, to do the bypass operation. So you can avoid one of the really bad complications, which is sternal wound infection and what we call as a mediastinum or underneath the breastbone. Whenever you go laterally or avoid the sternal access, you can avoid that major complication, almost zero when you go through the side. The second thing is that's the patient benefit, faster recovery, less pain, avoidance of certain complications. The second thing is for the surgeons, as Steve mentioned, that when you do a mitral valve, particularly with the mitral valve, as you can see in the middle picture, when you go through the side, you have the best access, straight shot access to the mitral valve. And even though the mitral valve is further away from you, you can see it better, you don't have to distort the mitral valve by retracting the mitral valve or the left atrium like we do when we go through the front. You are leaving the mitral valve in a reasonably normal anatomical position. 
in order to assess the valve, especially for mitral valve repair and reconstruction. So I think there is a surgical advantage for performance of the operation and the patient-related advantage if you avoid this norm. That's really great. I think what I'd like to do now, since we've uh, mentioned um, uh, that minimally invasive cardiac surgery can be applied to different types of cardiac uh, conditions. We've talked about the mitral valve, the aortic valve. Uh, we've talked about coronary bypass surgery. Atrial fibrillation is another condition which can be treated with, uh, with uh, uh, less invasive approaches, uh, not unlike what we've discussed right now. And my plan, our plan, is to discuss each of these in much greater detail in subsequent uh, webinars. But I think it would be a nice way to illustrate the principles overall if we perhaps discussed uh, 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 these principles uh, and the ideas around uh, the, uh, the patient who has coronary artery disease. Because I think that's a great example of how percutaneous technologies have evolved to a very, uh, very sophisticated level compared to where they were in the uh, in the 1980s, and how um, um, and how surgical options have also evolved. And of course, we might finish up by uh, by uh, by talking a little bit about uh, how we can adopt a blended approach or a hybrid approach towards the treatment of coronary artery disease, uh, which is the most common pathology that we deal with, and in my view, also the most complex and nuanced uh, type of cardiac pathology. So, Moritz, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, in this day and age, it, it, with, with the transcatheter therapy options we have available, which are essentially tools and equipment we can use to go through the arteries or the veins to do work on the heart. Um, I think we, we are in a new environment for cardiovascular care where we can truly uh, blend these approaches and, and use different tools um, all the way going from open traditional open heart surgery and, and opening up the chest to do work on the arrested heart to exclusively using catheters for certain things that we do. And then there's everything in between and the opportunity really to blend the two things. And I think um, it, it has really revolutionized the tools we have available um, in terms of transcatheter therapies have re has really re revolutionized how we can take care of certain complex problems, how we can combine uh, uh, different techniques and, and bring endovascular skills into, into our surgical practice and vice versa. I think that's a good point because no longer is it just one treatment modality dominates over another. Due to various technological innovations over the year, the stents that cardiologists use now are very good. And if you kind of compare the results for cardiac surgery, so bypass surgery with stents, there's often very little difference, at least in the short and midterm. And so it makes sense that with having every tool in our toolbox, being able to combine various modalities for the benefit of the patient and individualizing treatment for the patient, we can really offer better care overall. Steve, let me ask you, if a patient comes into your office with coronary artery disease, uh, what are the things that run through your head when you're thinking uh, as to whether or not that patient would be a suitable candidate for a minimally invasive approach? And perhaps you could talk a little bit about uh, uh, 
the types of grafts that we use in general, venous and arterial, and how, uh, you know, what you can do with a minimally invasive approach? Sure. Uh, patients that are referred to a cardiac surgeon for the treatment of their coronary disease generally have more advanced disease. In patients who have more mild disease, those patients are often treated as well or potentially better with those catheter approaches that Moritz was talking about. Um, so when we're seeing a patient in the office with complex disease that involves all the major heart arteries, um, generally the studies that have been done over the last three or four decades have suggested that of the options we've got to treat them, medicines, those balloons and stents or bypass surgery, bypass surgery tends to be the best uh, certainly from a long-term treatment standpoint and avoiding um, uh, complications of uh, their uh, heart artery disease, heart attacks and that sort of thing, readmission to the hospital and death. Um, so the minimally invasive aspect of this comes in, uh, given that in the United States, about currently about 90% of those operations get done um, by surgeons who uh, open the breastbone and put the patient on the heart-lung machine and stop their heart. So there are really, I would say, three different less invasive options for those patients. The first would be in patients who require many different bypasses um, over all the different areas of the heart, the ability to do that operation with the heart beating without having to stop their heart or put, their on, put them on the heart-lung machine has been shown to significantly decrease their length of stay in the ICU, their length of stay in the hospital, um, various complications, and in many cases, um, their ability to survive the procedure and go home. So uh, a less invasive approach for multi-vessel coronary disease would include an off-pump bypass operation. Um, in selected, more selected patients, um, uh, an even less invasive approach could be considered. We know that in heart surgery, of all the interventions that can be done, if we can take the, as uh, Nirav mentioned, if we can take the internal mammary artery off the left side of the chest wall, connect it to the main channel in the front, the left anterior descending coronary, that graft alone, because of the durability of the arterial graft itself and the runoff to an extremely large portion of the heart is probably the one intervention that we know of that prolongs life. So that particular graft becomes the foundation of what we do treating heart artery disease surgically. In that situation, let's say I'm seeing a patient who only has that artery on the front part of the heart disease, and it can't be managed with a balloon and a stent. Often we can perform that sort of an operation, not only without having to stop the heart or put them on the heart-lung machine, but through one of these small incisions between the ribs on the left side of their chest. So therefore, we've accomplished both the goals of minimally invasive surgery, avoiding a breastbone incision and avoiding the heart-lung machine. So that operation, which we'll sometimes call a mid-cab operation, a minimally invasive direct coronary bypass operation can be um, used to treat highly selected patients with that single vessel disease. We can combine that operation 
um, uh, with balloons and stents to other targets in that hybrid coronary revascularization that we think may offer the best of both worlds, an extremely um, uh, minimally invasive approach, yet an operation uh, or a set of procedures that may offer the patient the advantages of durability with the less invasive nature of um, uh, sternal sparing, a surgical approach, and catheters. So th thank you for that, Steve. Now, Nirov, I'm going to ask you um, what role the robot has to play in this. And, and, and I'd like to point out that, uh, you know, many patients come into our office and they use the word robot because they've, uh, because they've heard it or someone's told them about it, um, perhaps read about it in the, in the press or the media. And um, uh, it, the, a general point that one can make about surgical procedures is that it's unlike a medication uh, like aspirin, for example, if you prescribe aspirin, um, then you, 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 you buy aspirin and you know that when you take it, you're taking aspirin. In other words, it's very consistent. The delivery of the therapy is very consistent. With surgery, obviously, a lot depends upon the technique and the surgeon. And um, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about, uh, with your interest in robotics, how you think uh, robotics factors into the treatment of coronary artery disease? So robot is another tool and it is extremely helpful in one of the most important part of coronary artery surgery, as Steve mentioned, of procuring the internal mammary artery. So you can get it from the top to bottom. Uh, obviously you can get it done with a small incision looking at it directly, um, but robot, with its camera inside the chest, the instruments which have got endo wrist attached to it, um, you can also apply that to wide range of body habitus, which is you know, some patients are very obese, some patients have very large body habitus, then the robotic uh, technology helps you harvest the internal mammary artery consistently in majority of the patients and a full access. Um, that's one part of it, and that's how majority of the time for bypass surgery, the internal uh, the robot is used for, and that's what I use for. It is it can also help you do the bypass surgery in a completely closed chest fashion. Um, some of the technology which was available a few years ago, it's no more available. So that particular operation, what we call as a completely closed chest bypass operation, I don't perform anymore because some instrumentations are not available as of now. Uh, maybe they might again appear in future, but that's got a very small limited application. So to me, robot levels the playing field in terms of what you said is that maybe for more surgeons it's applicable because it's easier to learn compared to harvesting the internal mammary artery, direct vision, through a smaller incision. Having done both of them a few hundred times, I think robot is easier. Um, but then there are other uh, issues with robot in a way that you're not next to the patient. So you need a bedside assistant. So you are dependent on other individuals to help you out. Whereas when you do it yourself through a small incision, you are fully under control of the operation. So there are advantages and disadvantages, and the robot comes with its own cost and access to the robot as well. So this really brings up the issue of training, and um, 
Moritz, who's the, now uh, my associate and where where colleagues uh, did did his did some of his training over here. He trained at Wisconsin and then at Duke and uh, uh, also at Harvard and uh, and then came here. Um, and, uh, and has stayed here. We're very grateful for that. I've, it's been a joy to have him in the training program most of the time. I don't want him to get carried away by this, but, um, and, um, and, and I can say with confidence that I have learned a great deal from him and continue to do so, really quite remarkable. And the same with Aaron. It's just a great experience to have, you know, talented, smart people around you that are pointing out things that, uh, that you can do to improve and fine tune what you do. But on the issue of training, people who want to go into it, uh, and we've got you know two sets. Uh, one is uh, the sort of person that Aaron and Moritz represent, which is uh, people that came out of um, you know out of their training programs and decided that they wanted to spend uh, extra time up front before they went into practice learning uh, these techniques. And there are others who've been in practice. Um, uh, for a few years and didn't have the opportunity to learn these techniques, but want to do it and implement it safely. So, Moritz, what are your thoughts on training? Um, in, in what regard? I mean, well, for these two groups of individuals, you know, for if you have an interest in in uh, in developing um, skills in minimally invasive and transcatheter uh, uh, techniques techniques while you're in training as a cardiac surgery resident, uh, what should you do? And, mm -hmm. and the second is if you're in practice, say you've been in practice for five years um, and you want to introduce this into your uh, practice as something you can offer your patients, how do you go about doing it and doing it safely? Because safety is such an important component. I'd like you to address yeah, that. I, I, for me, obviously, coming here was, um, uh, really motivated by the fact that there started to be a transition um, of how we take care of patients with valve disease and really getting a more in-depth experience with transcatheter skills, uh, with Houston Methodist being really one of the powerhouses for transcatheter technology. And I, although I had done uh, uh, a fair amount of transcatheter um, valves and training, um, I, I think I was interested in getting a different dimension, um, really build uh, something more than just the basic uh, wire skills to get very facile um, doing complex structural heart interventions uh, across the portfolio of, of, of um, uh, transcatheter therapies that we now have available. Uh, to me, it was also quite clear that it, it, it's not just wider skills. I think the sort of um, modern contemporary cardiac surgeon, if you will, really needs um, wider skills, needs open skills, but also imaging skills. So that was another component that I, 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 I thought out and wanted to really expand on um, getting a really good um, understanding of how we leverage imaging technology to that end. and. I think if we look just in a training in, in general, it's, there's a lot of competing interests. And I think there's a lot of conversation on a national level to what extent um, transcatheter technologies should become part of training of cardiac surgeons, um, because it's quite clear that that space has grown very rapidly and is becoming increasingly part of, of of what we take care of um, as cardiac surgeons. 
but there's also a competing interest during training, I think, and, and there's only time for so much. And I think not everybody has to become a uh, structural interventionalist. Not everybody has to become really an expert at using transcatheter technology, understanding all the nuances. Uh, not everybody has to become a valve surgeon. And I think, though, for those who are really interested in that, who really want to pursue a career focused on structural heart and valve disease, there is uh, almost an, uh, it's, I, I would say, almost mandatory to pursue additional training to really get a solid understanding. Because frankly, if you look at the training time that's available, there's already enough else things that need to be learned and, and there's probably just not enough time to get in such depth that you really can then tailor um, your career and interest towards becoming a, an expert in, in, in the field. So what I'm hearing from Moritz Aaron is that um, we can't all do everything and um, that's probably true. I think we're getting more and more specialized in our specialty just as other specialties have. But tell me about your thoughts on training what do you what did you think about doing uh, sure. when you decided you wanted to train in minimally invasive cardiac surgery and transcatheter techniques so first off I'm very glad this topic came up um, I'm by far the most junior member on this panel the most junior surgeon here I finished my training last year up in Canada as Dr. Ramchandani said at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. And during my training, I also took a couple years off and I did a master's in education from Johns Hopkins. And I learned a lot about higher level education, about uh, educational pedagogy, but education for adult learners, particularly in the medical field, can be broken down into three things when learning new topics or, or new competencies like this. Um, the learner, the teacher, and the environment or the support. So first off, the, the learner is something that Moritz discussed. I think it's important to understand that not everyone is meant to be a minimally invasive cardiac surgeon. Not everyone going through cardiac surgery training is going to become facile with the techniques or technologies uh, or develop the skills to do transcatheter valve work. Um, it really takes someone with a passion for it and a solid foundation uh, in the basics of cardiac surgery. You really need to become a master in the open procedures in sternotomy, uh, coronary artery bypass surgery, and valve surgery before you look at minimally invasive surgery. It adds a, a whole another dimension or element. The other two factors, the you need a, a good faculty or instructor or mentor. Um, and this mentor needs to be someone who is established in the field, who has proven results, um, and has the skills and motivation to teach. And lastly, you need support because there's something that I've learned throughout the years that cardiac surgery is not a, a one-person game. You really need support from the administration in order to get you the necessary equipment to be okay with you being a little bit slower in the beginning of your learning because invariably these procedures are going to take longer as you're just learning rather than, say, going to do them 10 years later. And in addition, you need a strong team around you. The anesthesiologist, the perfusionist, or the people who run the heart-lung machine, our cardiology team and our ICU team, they all really need to understand that minimally invasive cardiac surgery patients are a little bit different than standard sternotomy cardiac surgery patients. So you really need this whole team approach to be successful in learning these skills, acquiring the competencies, and delivering for patients in the future. 
So, um, Nero, let me ask you about the role that professional societies have in providing education and training for uh, for people that are in practice, because uh, we we know that there has been a great demand for it. I mean, to take the example of the robot, uh, most people who began using the robot were already in practice for a while, and 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 there were issues, uh, you know, uh, with training and. Uh, um, um, uh, competencies along the way. And the professional societies have really stepped in. I think the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, uh, ISMIX, I think, has done a fantastic job in this area. The International Society for Minimally Invasive Cardiac Surgery, which you've been, uh, 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 you're on the board and uh, uh, they do a great job. But can you tell us a little bit about the role that professional societies play and should play uh, in, in this area? So I think uh, uh, the training depends upon uh, the individual, as um, uh, Aaron and Moritz mentioned. And then it depends upon the curriculum and what do you want to do. And what the societies have done in the last 10 years particularly is that they have put certain parameters as to if you want to do, um, a, say, a robotic mitral valve, then there are robotic mitral valve STS cores. Uh, ISMIX and all these professional societies have some kind of a document which says that uh, what you need to do to become competent. In fact, STS has come up with a very good initiative right now that they are uh, allowing, giving scholarship for mentors, um, the people to seek out mentors and go and learn. These are people who are already in practice and you can watch few procedures. The mentors come to their place and train them and do that. Uh, ISMIX does that. Uh, also, um, ISMIX sponsors various courses, hands-on courses, as you mentioned, and we've been to your Re-Evolution Summit course at, at Methodist, which is ultimate hands-on course. So before any practicing surgeon wants to start venturing into doing a minimally invasive cardiac procedure, he or she needs to identify a particular procedure which he or she is interested in. They should go to a professional society sponsored courses. They should go to some hands-on courses which you run, one, some like you run, which is fantastic. And then they should develop a relationship with some mentors and start doing the procedures. Patient selection is very important and acquiring some basic skills is very important. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously I believe in the role of um, uh, uh, hands-on uh, teaching. It's so important in our field. And for 10 years, as you know now, we have, we have conducted a meeting here in MITE uh, the Methodist Institute for Technology, Innovation, and Education, uh, which focuses on hands-on approaches to coronary disease, mitral disease, aortic disease, and the two of you, uh, along with many others, have been great supporters of it. We're very grateful for that. I'd like to point out what I did before uh, at the beginning, that all of the talks and lectures from previous episodes of this meeting, um, the re-evolution meeting, and I'll explain why it's called that in just a moment, are available on the uh, DeBakey Education channel on YouTube. The reason we called it re-evolution was because um, 
you know, I felt that you'd evolved to a certain point, you were in practice, and you felt that you needed to re-evolve, uh, which is why we gave it that, uh, gave it that, uh, that tagline. Ritz, tell me about your thoughts on this. Simulation, we, we have a question over here about simulation uh, for training in mid-cab. Is it a realistic thing? And um... Yeah, I, I think it's, um... Simulation has certainly become much more uh, commonplace. I think as patients have gotten sicker, that we take care of more complex, as our outcomes are more scrutinized. I think more attention has been um, directed towards simulation. And uh, it, it turns out that if you look at, and Aaron probably can speak more eloquently to that topic, having his background in education, but if you look at simulation studies and where people look the, at the benefits of simulation, it turns out that you don't even need very sophisticated simulators to reap the benefits of, of a deliberate practice, essentially. And that's what it comes down to. It's a little hard to um, do deliberate practice on uh, patients that um, need good surgery, good outcomes in a reasonable amount of time. I, I think in cardiac surgery, we have an additional... Um, a complicating factor, which is the heart-lung machine, where we um, have limited time to get our work done as opposed to other specialties, maybe where there's a little bit more time that can be spent on, on, on practicing. And, uh, but I think, yeah, simulation is very important. I think yeah, certainly, again, uh, coming back to transcatheter technology, simulation is an important aspect. Uh, it's more and more recognized, I think, in all surgical fields and certainly in cardiac surgery as well. I, as Aaron had pointed out earlier, I think it's a, it's a gradual process to go from uh, being a good open full exposure cardiac surgeon to becoming a good minimal invasive cardiac surgeon, not specific to cardiac surgery, but all surgical disciplines, really, I think, in that each step has a learning curve. Um, each additional technique or technology you use has a, a learning curve. And so you maybe not want to jump from, from one extreme to another. And I think in, here in the U.S. we have somewhat of a benefit in that we still train in both cardiac and thoracic surgery. And a lot of thoracic surgical work is now done minimal invasively. And I think that's where you can... Uh, train sort of first steps of using smaller incisions, using shafted instruments, work in parallel, using an endoscope to get work done. Um, but again, I think simulation is an important part. It's very doable. Um, there's a lot of different models out there, and I think it's an important, it's an important part. Aaron, what, what do you think? So I think you really hit the nail on the head. It's not the fact that um, you use a, a low or high fidelity simulation, so um, something that you can find in a box and work on a tabletop versus something that looks very realistic. The simple fact that if there is repetition, if there is deliberate learning, even kind of mentally going over the steps in your head, there's value to that. Um, the simple fact that you're going through the motions and learning is the most important part to developing these skills, even before you reach the operating room and touch the patient. It's worth pointing out uh, that the gastro or, or the general surgeons really uh, uh, saw the value of deliberate practice and, 
and um, develop methods to measure performance and measure progress. In fact, Brian Duncan, who was the director of MITEI here for a while and has now moved on, uh, together uh, with a surgeon in Canada and Montreal, helped develop the techniques for simulation and deliberate practice and measurement of performance that ultimately led uh, to the development of the Fundamentals of Laparoscopic Surgery course which is now FLS, which is now uh, required uh, uh, when you graduate as a general surgeon if you want to uh, perform laparoscopic surgery. And I think we're a long way away from doing that in our specialty, but uh, there's your challenge, Aaron, you know? <laughs> there really is, and actually it's interesting that you mentioned that because there are a number of different scoring systems and metrics that we can use to, to judge learners' progress in cardiac surgery, but for a variety of reasons, none of them are perfect and none of them are that widespread. Um, but it's definitely something that's continuing to evolve in the future as we put more emphasis on the acquisition of various competencies or the development of milestones of right. the learners. And I, I kind of just to reiterate, and I agree with what Maritza said, before we even kind of go down the road of training our learners how to do minimally invasive cardiac surgery, they would need to meet a certain kind of fundamental competency in general cardiac surgery, general sternotomy, or open cardiac surgery before we advance their skills a little bit more. And kind of to talk about a time frame of that, it really should be an individualized thing, learner to learner. Some learners may become more comfortable and may be ready to move on with that tradition kind of towards the senior years of their fellowship. Some um, maybe not until they, they subspecialize further. And even for others, it might be many years out into practice that they uh, pick up these skills and redefine themselves. Yeah, well, I certainly hope that the likes of Moritz and you will help develop these platforms where we can measure performance and, you know, uh, um, uh, I think that will help a great deal. I would add one thought to that, Mahesh, and that is that um, across the board, these minimally invasive procedures are technically more difficult. Mm -hmm. And there are continuing challenges to teach people how to do that and teach the next generation of surgeons. As an example, um, if you look at the, let's just talk about that um, beating heart off pump bypass surgery we talked about. In the early 2000s, in the United States, about 25% of bypass surgery operations got done that way. In 2019, that number was 11%. So it's, it's a much more challenging technical procedure. Results are now um, posted online and published in the newspaper. Um, it's a much more transparent world. And um, those techniques are difficult to learn and under, always under challenge. The way we trained heart surgeons back in the uh, old days was you would go visit an expert and you would watch them magically move the patient around and do this mineral invasive operation. Then you would be expected to go back and do it successfully yourself. And that's enormously challenging. And uh, about one or 2% of the people who tried to learn that way were successful. So the addition of things like simulation, for instance, may move that needle a little bit for us. You know, if you can go watch an expert in the morning and then in the afternoon take what you've seen to a simulation lab and try to practice those skills deliberately, we think that we may be able to increase that percentage of um, learners who can then successfully translate that into a successful, safe um, practice. 
Yeah, Steve, I, I think you've stated the point in the same point that we were making earlier in a different way. I don't think that these procedures are more difficult. I think they're different. And I think the issue over here is that the people, or many of the people that were performing in the example you mentioned, off-pump coronary bypass surgery, were not properly trained in it. And I think if you're properly trained in it, the procedure ceases to be difficult, it just becomes different. I can say with a great deal of confidence that Moritz, for example, um, will do a minimally invasive coronary bypass operation or aortic valve or mitral with a great deal of confidence and safety without ever making me feel that there is any compromise in the safety of the patient. And obviously that means he's completely comfortable with it and he's reached that point. Getting there is a process. Aaron is there. I'm very happy to see that, but it happens, it's a process. It doesn't happen by you going to visit somebody and then, uh, and then go back and try to do it. Mm -hmm. So I do think this, this emphasis on training, on structured learning, deliberate practice, a method to measure performance is extremely important. We have that in our residency programs today and have for several decades when it comes to the performance of uh, the most common cardiac surgical operations we do. There is a good robust structure to them and this is how we're able to turn residents out like, like, like Aaron, Moritz, you and I in years past that we're able to go out and do things safely. We don't have the same elements in place for minimally invasive cardiac surgery. And it's a separate discussion as to whether or not we should be doing it in parallel to what they're learning right now, or whether it should be done as a super fellowship uh, along the lines of what Aaron has done. So I do think this, this issue of training is something that we haven't as a specialty tackled in this sphere of minimally invasive cardiac surgery. I'd like to make the point that when it comes to transcatheter skills, and let's talk specifically about uh, transcatheter aortic valve uh, replacement, um, this is an area uh, for reasons that are obvious where industry has stepped in. So that now if you want to learn how to do a TAVR, you know, there's lots of resources that are available from industry which will teach you how to do that. Not so when it comes to an open surgical, minimally invasive technique. Um, I'd like in the closing minutes over here for us to just spend a little bit of time talking about um, teleproctoring and telemedicine uh, and the role it has to play um, in teaching. So Moritz, could you give us your thoughts on that? Yeah, and uh, I think uh, with the current environment, there has certainly been um, a move away from having people coming in and out of the hospital. And with that, uh, people have a renewed or intensified interest in pursuing other options, which is really where teleproctoring uh, comes in. Uh, we have used it here. I think it has great potential. It, it uh, requires the correct setup, um, but I think it has uh, truly the potential to to change things and, and really har harvesting sort of contemporary technology, the internet, um, AV media to train surgeons, to train all kind of specialists is a uh, imp important one. And I think one that will have even more emphasis after this entire COVID-19 situation that we're in. 
Yeah, what do you think, Aaron? Teleproctoring. So I think we're probably on the cusp of an evolution or re-evolution in teleproctoring, something that we wouldn't have been able to see 10 or 15 years ago, simply due to the new technology that's available and the ability to you know, sync in these Zoom meetings and to have um, direct live visual feedback from cameras in the operating room. We're able to really facilitate conversations, mentoring and proctoring um, a lot better than we were in the past. So I think we probably aren't quite there yet for minimally invasive cardiac surgery teleproctoring, but I don't think we're too far off. And it might be one of those situations where um, the learner goes to an established center where there's an expert mentor, watches for uh, a few procedures. Maybe the mentor comes back to the learner center to assist or um, coach through. And then for the next couple cases, the, the mentor returns back to a center and teleproctors in. I think that's, that's probably going to be in our future without yeah. too much yeah. longer. I, I would just add to that that I think, as um, Aaron pointed out, it's probably not ever going to replace um, the initial steps of learning a new procedure, but I think it has certainly great potential to continue to refine techniques mm -hmm. or, or help people to get better at a certain technique. And I think teleproctoring can take many forms. It can be in the sense of having a um, AV set up in the operating theater with, with a direct loop communication between the proctor and the surgeons or proceduralists. It can be um, using video footage of, of procedure surgeries and having those reviewed remotely by other surgeons to give feedback and, and continue to improve. But I think the important point is that um, it, it can be used and I think it has tremendous potential to expand what we're currently doing in terms of proctoring, which is essentially consisted of someone, an expert traveling to one facility, comes at great cost in, in, many, in many different dimensions. And, and I think teleproctoring really can be harnessed there to, to really um, provide a more economic way, a more um, um, widely available way of, of um, providing that support that insight to refine techniques and, and, and really help a larger audience to, to adopt. Yeah, very well put. It's, it's worth pointing out that, uh, that teleproctoring, I think, is far easier for procedures such as endovascular procedures and laparoscopic procedures where, where you can transmit the entire data set, everything that the surgeon is looking at in their operating room or hybrid room to the proctor, everything. Um, so that gives the advantage where the proctor, in the case of a laparoscopic colectomy, for example, can look in and, and can see exactly where the instruments are and, and tell us straight and tell you what to do where. This is not quite the case with minimally invasive surgery, uh, which is done under direct vision, although robotic surgery, I think, holds the promise for that. And uh, Nero, perhaps you can talk about that, but teleproctoring so and robotic surgery. So I, I think I think that's what you alluded to. I think uh, you only need two video feeds, one from the endoscope of the robot so that what surgeon is seeing and an external video feed as to what's happening at the patient's bedside. You don't need um, all the other aspect which you would need for minimally invasive direct access cardiac surgery. So teleproctoring can, um, can be very helpful in those cases. 
But again, it cannot substitute the initial few cases, as Aaron mentioned, that is to be done at, by observation and then direct uh, uh, mentoring. And then tele-mentoring and tele-proctoring can be done for the subsequent cases and also patient selection and all that. Steve, closing thoughts? I would only add in that last thought, the one limitation to teleproctoring um, may be a technological one, and that's the, taking the three-dimensional view and making it two-dimensional. And with um, virtual reality, it's possible that we're one technical iteration away from being able to um, uh, send those same inputs that you described in 3D. Um, uh, thereby, you know, uh, obviating one of the real limitations of teleproctoring for a, a mentor. Well, I think we're going to close it off over there. I'd like to thank Steve Hoff uh, in Orlando, Nirav Patel in New York. Uh, New York obviously has been the worst hit uh, in this pandemic, and our hearts go out to you, really. You guys have done a great job over there. Um, Moritz, uh, Wyla von Balmus, from whom I continue to learn, and I look forward to that, and Aaron Spooner, uh, who's, uh, who will be returning to Canada uh, in the next two or three months, but we will obviously continue to stay in close touch uh, with each other. Of course. Um, we, we will be hosting a conference such as this on minimally invasive cardiac surgery uh, once a month, the third Thursday of every month. And uh, what I intend to do, what we have discussed amongst ourselves, is that um, in subsequent uh, webinars like this, we will drill down and focus on specific procedures uh, and go into greater detail. Uh, this was uh, a more general discussion to set the stage. Um, a reminder to all of you that uh, the YouTube channel, DeBakey Education, uh, has a, um, um, a wealth of videos, not just on minimally invasive cardiac surgery, but cardiac surgery in general, cardiology, and all subjects related to these and vascular surgery that you may find of interest. And so I hope that you will, uh, uh, you'll, what's the word? You, you, you favorite it? You mark it? What do you do? You, you, like you, and favorite. You follow it. Follow well, it. That's know. right. Yeah. Follow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> subscribe to it. That's the word I was looking for. So do please subscribe to it. And uh, thank you again uh, for giving of your time and stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's our show for today. And thank you for listening. Would love to hear your thoughts about the mixed topics discussed in today's show. So please send us a tweet using hashtag CVNow, and don't forget to tag us at debakey at CVEDU. If you like the show, please show us the support by subscribing to this channel and leaving us a review. You can find more digital cardiovascular education opportunities through debakey CV Education by following us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter.